0: Uh, recently, uh, as you know, if you live here in San Francisco, uh, KoiT ninety six point five uh, kind of goes full bore into the Christmas uh, spirit, um, plays it twenty four seven, and you know gets the 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 city into the spirit of Christmas. And uh, for my family, we were in the car, um, and I was trying to drown out my baby screaming, uh, so I turned on KoiT. Um, and wanted to listen to some Christmas music thinking this would be, uh you know, festive. Um, my wife, Olivia, stalked me and she uh, said, um, to my surprise, that this, this brought back some feelings listening to this music. Um, but it wasn't the type of feeling that you and I would um, attribute to Christmas music. Um, for her, it actually brought back pain because it tied her back uh, to a season of great suffering Uh, almost a decade ago, uh, where it was the Christmas season. And uh, she received a call um, from her family back in Texas where uh, they revealed to her that a close family friend, uh, a nine-year-old girl named Miley, uh, had been diagnosed with a very rare and aggressive form of child cancer, uh, one that had no cure. Um, And hearing these Christmas songs brought about that same resurgence of pain and suffering from those years ago. Now, she wasn't against us listening to it. Uh, she had just was speaking uh, as she was listening um, that she couldn't help but be reminded of that season of life, a uh, very dark season. And perhaps uh, some of, in, of you in here um, have that same experience. Uh, you have those same feelings come about during Christmas season, especially as the family comes to gather together. Those losses, those voids are more clear than ever before. As we continue our Advent series on joy, uh, today we're taking a look at joy and suffering, uh, which seems to be kind of ridiculous if you think about it. How do joy and suffering go hand in hand when these two things seem so opposed to one another? Doesn't suffering destroy joy? How can those two things come together? And so today as we look at the scripture, um, we look at Habakkuk, we want to discover how the gospel of Jesus not only gives us an answering to our suffering, but also gives us joy in the midst of our sufferings. And so we turn to uh, Habakkuk um, to, to see how in suffering we learn three things. The first one is we learn to wait upon the Lord in our suffering. The second is we learn to accept his sovereignty. And the third is we learn to trust in his character. All right, So three ways that we learn in our suffering. The first is we, we learn in suffering how to wait upon the Lord. I'm going to give you guys a bit of context of Habakkuk because we're jumping straight into the end of this book. Uh, It's a very short book. Uh, It almost reads like a psalm uh, where the prophet Habakkuk is speaking to God and God responds to him. Um, And it's not a great time. Habakkuk is uh, lamenting the fact that Judah or the people of God have become so wicked and evil uh, that there's violence all about. There's injustice all about. And he feels like God has turned a blind eye to them. And he complains to God. He says, can't you see this? Can't you see what's going on? And God responds and says, yes, I see it. And in fact, I'm raising up uh, the Babylonians to come as a punishment for God's people. It's a terrible nation that has wreaked havoc uh, and fear upon all the neighboring nations. And he's saying, these are the people I'm bringing in to be disciplined for them. And Habakkuk is astonished by this response. He says, how could this be? The Babylonians are even worse than us. How could it be that you're bringing them, even more wicked people, to come and complete your work? He does not understand God's answer. He he doesn't accept it. God responds to him and says, I will punish them as well. I will fairly judge all the nations. I will make sure all evilness is paid back in full. And even though I'm using Babylon to carry out my work, I will hold them accountable for their actions. To which Habakkuk responds in a prayer where he pleads with God, act now. Act now. And he gives a prophetic word. He points back to the Exodus uh, when God saved his people out of Egypt, and he says, One day you will do the same for us. You will save us again. You will save us from the Pharaohs and the Babylons that oppressed your people, and you will be the salvation of your anointed people. And that's when we get to this passage, which is the conclusion of the whole book, the ending. And this is where we get Habakkuk's resolution in this matter in verse 16. Look with me. He says, I hear. And my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those people who invade us. says, I hear. In other words, I understand. I get it now. I comprehend. First, yes, my people will be destroyed by the Babylonians. We will be punished rightfully by God. For our sins, it's coming, it's inevitable. And that's why you see his bodily, physical response. He says, I, I tremble, I quake, my lips quiver, rottenness enters into my bones. See, he's, he's small before the Almighty. He recognizes the coming, impending doom, and he's rightfully terrified of what is to come. The Babylonians are known for their cruelty, their violence, their wickedness, and he knows that great suffering awaits them. But he also understands God's holiness. He understands that God will destroy the Babylonians for their wickedness. He will respond. And therefore, he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will quietly wait. Day of trouble being God's payback. And the people who invade us clearly is the Babylonians. Here's the problem. He has to wait. He doesn't know how long, he doesn't know when it'll come, but he says, I will quietly wait. And another way to, to understand it is I will wait patiently, meaning it's not going to come according to his wisdom, his timing, or his understanding, but God, I will quietly wait. Because what does he want? Habakkuk wants it instantly. He says, God, I want you to act now. I don't want you to even let the Babylonians come in. I want you to act instantly. According to my wisdom, my understanding, God, to do it right, you should act immediately. That's what he was asking for in chapter 2. And yet what he's recognizing here is it will be a long wait, and it will come certainly after the destruction of Judah. In other words, suffering will come. And this we have here is Habakkuk's suffering, right? His people face destruction because they are wicked and they are unrepentant, and it's coming from God himself. And that's scary. It terrifies him. It shakes him to his very core. And the worst thing, perhaps, is he can't do anything about it. He's watching it come, and he can't move a finger. And imagine that. To see the incoming pain and to be unable to to avoid any of it. This powerlessness that fills him. Which is why his response is so surprising. As much as it pains me to know what terror awaits us, yet I will quietly wait. I will patiently wait for you, God, to act as I know you will. I will wait for your timing. I will wait for you to carry out what you have deemed as right. What we learn in suffering is to wait upon the Lord. That is in every situation in the good and especially the bad, it's to lean upon the Lord and say, I I don't understand God, (laughs) but you do. I don't know God, but you do. I can't act, but God, you will. Right? And this is difficult for us when it comes to situations that we fear and have no answers for. And the question that we need to ask, and I I ask you now, is what situations is God calling you to wait in? Whether it's, and I think there's a whole list that we can go through, whether it's losing a loved one, whether it's losing your mother, your grandfather, Losing your child, waiting for a diagnosis that you're deathly afraid of, watching a a loved one fade away, entering into another season of depression and anxiety. Oh, look, the list is endless. And we hate those, don't we? We hate pain. We hate feeling powerless. It makes us feel so small because it's clear that we don't have any power to change anything. My friend, the question that I pose to you is, what would it look like for you to wait upon the Lord in this season of pain? See, for Habakkuk, it was learning to see beyond the pain. Yes, the pain is there. It's real. It's not minimized, but he sees through it. He sees past it, and he looks to the one who is in control. He looks to the one whose promises await him. He waits for the day of trouble to come. He waits for the Lord to act. In other words, for us to wait upon the Lord to act is to say, yes, it hurts God, but this is not the conclusion. This is not the end. Because my God is a holy God. He's a righteous God, and I know he will right each and every wrong. I will wait patiently. My friends, this is where we actually get the first glimpses of joy. Right? Think about it. This, this guy who, for the, the entirety of the book, has been shaking, quivering, suddenly has a calm suddenly is steady, suddenly has a certainty, and it comes from him resting upon, waiting upon his God. We see the beginnings of joy. Second, in suffering, we learn to accept God's sovereignty. We see Habakkuk describing the future to come in verse 17. Look with me. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. All right. He is describing a future vision of God's people. Um, and, and it's pure devastation. All right. Everything in here is listed as is, uh, pointing to an agricultural uh, disaster. No fruit. Uh, the fields are empty. The herds are gone. The stalls are empty. Uh, and in other words, what he's saying is, we're dead. It's catastrophe, right? There's no sustenance. There's nothing to live on. And especially for a, a culture like theirs that was coolly dependent on their agriculture, this is the worst case scenario. In other words, doom. And yet his response to this f- vision is surprising because in verse 18, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He accepts what's coming, which is surprising, right? Because he started off this letter by rejecting everything God has been telling him. He says, no, that can't be, that can't be. And that's a very human response, isn't it? It's the human response when we encounter pain or suffering we deny. It's innate in us. This first step of grief, it's denial. We reject what is reality, what is plainly seen, and it's in each of us, this is true of minor pain and this is true of major pain, whether little or small. I mean, think about it. Little pain, minor pain. We deny if you're a Niner's fan. Oh my gosh, we lost again. What's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? No way. That can't be. Jimmy threw that? No. But we saw it. It happened. It's also true of major pain. And lose a loved one. There's no way he's gone. There's no way. He's, he has to be here. Our first response is always denial, disbelief. We reject the ugly reality because, my friends, I don't think we were meant for this ugly reality. It's our inherent nature as humans made in the image of God to reject ugly pain and suffering because we were not made for it. It's not how God designed us. Because this ugly reality that we face is not what God had in mind. But it is the result of our brokenness. It is the result of our sin wreaking havoc on this world. The Christian way to say it is we were not made for sin. And pain and suffering, which is the natural outcome of sin, is unnatural and it's ugly. And we can't help but say no. We run. Because we have no answers and we have no solutions for it. We deny which is why it's so incredible to see Habakkuk's change in heart. He stops rejecting it. He stops denying it. He says, I accept it. All right? He, he complained to God about his plans. I don't understand. God, you got to be wrong. You, you, you got it wrong, God. And yet now he says, this will happen. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. He was experiencing what Spurgeon, a, a Christian pastor and and theologians spoke about this deep-rooted pain that comes to believers in the midst of great pain. The Lord breathes into his people his own peace. Many saints have their highest joy in their deepest trial. The Son of God is with them in the burning, fiery ferns. They are not disturbed in prospect of the worst of evils. Their heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord God gives them a divine serenity so that they can stay, and he, in his sermon, quotes this very passage where he says, so they can say, though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no f- fruit of food. If the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yes, these things, are ter- these things are coming. These terrible situations are coming. Yes, this means we are doomed, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will take joy in the God of my salvation because he is with me. He is for me. I can trust him. See, what we're seeing is Habakkuk is accepting his circumstances. Or well, more accurately, he's accepting of God's sovereignty. How does one come to this point? of accepting God's sovereignty. See, Habakkuk, for Habakkuk, his circumstances haven't changed. right? They, they will still lose all that they hold dear. Judah will face destruction. Babylon will come. And yet he still finds joy in the middle of darkness. And it's not because of circumstantial change. And it's important to note that there. The change is not in his circumstance, but the change is his source of joy. Because what does he say there in verse 18? His joy is in the Lord. His joy is in the God of his salvation. He's realizing that prosperity, food, peace, although these are good things and things to long for, they are not the source of joy. But the Lord is. And this source does not disappoint. All right. Note that this is not happiness we're talking about here. This is something far deeper, far richer than happiness. Happiness is very much uh, based upon our, our temporary realities, but joy is based on our eternal realities, and that's important to make that distinction. Right? Happiness can be stolen from you in an instant. Right? If your happiness comes from your uh, relationships, as long as you have good friends, you are happy. It can be gone in in, in a sense. simple simple instance. One wrong text, miscommunication, and those are gone. Or if your happiness is dependent on on a, a romantic relationship, as long as that person loves me. And that's even flimsier. Your happiness is dependent on how someone views you, which you have no control over. If it's in money. Remember Bitcoin? That's a lame source. That's a flimsy source. But for Habakkuk and for us, he's saying his joy comes from God his joy his source of joy is God the eternal reality and the eternal reality is God is always good God is always for me God's love is always for me and that never changes That's a source that does not run joy his joy is not flimsy because his God is not flimsy and for Habakkuk he can rejoice in this moment and at any moment because he knows that his God is sovereign through it all. This good God who is for me, who loves me, is still in control. And no situation is ever outside of his control. Nothing happens outside of his permittance. And so, if Babylon is coming to knock on our doors, to destroy us, this is still according to God's plan, and it is good. Habakkuk can still rejoice. God will use this for good and for his glory this is something that uh, Tim Chalice, uh, ch- uh, another pastor and blogger who wrote this. There's no circumstance beyond for the good because there's no circumstance apart from the definitive or de- definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And when he says for the good, he's talking about Romans eight twenty eight. Right, where he says for all those who who love God all things work together for the good of those who love him he's he's speaking of God's sovereignty over all things and and he doesn't just write this as as a blog but he wrote this after he lost his son who was only 20 years old suddenly and he had to wrestle with his loss and he said there's no circumstance beyond for the good because there's no circumstance apart from the definite plan and foreknowledge of God All these things are sovereignly happening under God's will. This is why you and I can rejoice in our sufferings. Because our joy comes from the good God who is sovereign over all. And this is what we need to learn to accept. It's not so much that we're accepting of the circumstances, right? As some sort of defeatist where we say, well, life is just like that, right? Life's not fair. But rather it's coming to find our joy which comes from accepting God's sovereign care. That is, he is in control. He's reigning as king over all. And if he is sovereign, then whatever suffering you may be enduring, it is purposeful and meaningful. Where do we, where do we hear that? And certainly not this world. Or we hear meaningless platitudes like, well, I'm so sorry for your loss. This is a kind thing to say, but what answers do we have for our pain? We don't have any. But the Bible tells us it is all purposeful, all meaningful, and you can be certain of this as long as your God is sovereign and in control. And so that even when disaster strikes, you can rejoice knowing that this God is in control and he will use it for good. And if you need any proof of this mind-bending truth that God can use the very worst moments of eternity for good, you don't have to look any further than the cross. Where you have an innocent man hanging upon that cross, bearing the weight of your sins and my sins, where his brutal and unfair death meant salvation for you and me. He is sovereign and he is overall. We can accept it, can't we? Finally, in suffering, we learn to trust his character. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. We have Habakkuk's resolution where he comes to a conclusion where he says, this is the God of my salvation. Right? He's the one who makes my feet like a deer. Or in other words, alive, certain, resilient, graceful. And he, he makes me tread on my high places. He's giving me the feet of victory. I'm not defeated. All, right, all these descriptions are directly tied to his relationship with God. This is my God. This is the God of my salvation. Right? And note that this is not just empty theology for Habakkuk. Right? He's not just reciting a theology. But rather, this is, this is a Habakkuk who, who is looking upon his, his personal experience relationship with God. And he says, this is a God I know. This is how I know who he is. I've experienced it with him. And he rejoices in knowing that God is truly who he says he is. It's one thing to say, "I, I know these things about God, and I sure hope I got it right. It's a totally different thing to place your fate in the hands of this God when your world is crumbling all around you. You better know for sure that this God is who he says he is. For Habakkuk, everything hinges on God Being who he says he is. It cannot be just theory. And it's clear in his conversation with God and ultimately his submitting to God that he does know this God personally. And see, that's what gives him joy to withstand his sufferings. To endure and hold fast to God. Habakkuk trusts God's character because he knows its character. It's been tested. He's put it to the test and he's seen it to be true. And perhaps this is what it comes down to, my friends. Do you know this God? Do you know him well enough to trust him when the going gets rough? Have you experienced him enough, tasted and seen that he is good enough to hold fast to him? And oftentimes it's in these darkest moments where his trustworthiness actually becomes the most evident to us. Miley didn't make it to her 10th birthday my wife was uh devastated um broken uh everything she thought she knew about life uh, and purpose was put through the fire when she died um and she needed answers right the questions that kept swirling in her heart what kind of world do we live in where little children died before their parents right what was the purpose of of my least life was it all pointless Is there no justice in this world? How could this be fear? Yet, Miley's death is actually what led my wife to turn to the Lord. Because in her desperation and her seeking for answers, she turned to scripture where she met the God who heard her groanings, who saw her and knew her pain. She found a God who would keep his promises to her, the God who loved her enough to send his own son down to die for her, The God who promised to put death to death. And for the first time since losing her friend, she experienced a hope. She suddenly knew that there was purpose. Even if she didn't understand why God would take her friend, why he allowed these things to happen, she realized that he was just and he was good. And he would answer to all these things one day didn't make the passing any less painful and in fact she struggled to to make sense of it for for many years following even as a believer but she had found joy in the midst of immense suffering it's like every believer who has gone before and every believer who will come in the darkest parts of the night she found the light of hope in christ she found light in darkness the god whom she could trust to be holy loving and caring Spurgeon, who we read uh, at first in the same sermon, spoke of this joy in the midst of pain. He says, the deeper the waters, the higher our ark mounts towards heaven. The darker the night, the more we prize our lamp. We have learned to sing in the dark with a thorn at our breast. Speaking of that light in darkness, isn't he? That hope that we cling to when everything else has fallen by the wayside, when we have nothing else to hold on to that's when we actually turn to Christ more, where our joy becomes deeper, richer than we could ever imagine. Because it's in the darkness that we actually see how bright the light of hope in Christ is. My friends who are hurting in here, and I I know enough of you uh, to know that there are many who are in pain, where they're currently going through something, a loss that still is very fresh, and for those of you who've endured that kind of pain in years past, and these seasons bring back those the same resurgences of pain, my friend, can you trust Him? As God who has proven Himself before, again and again to you, can you trust Him? He will not minimize your pain. He knows your pain, and in fact, He's gone through the deepest of it. And you know it. I know it. We see him on the crumbs. We heard his words as he hummed there. My friends, I I simply would remind you and ask you to to look to him and, and remember what he says to you. Do you trust him enough to rejoice in him? It's okay to be in pain. It's our human condition. But in that pain, it doesn't end there. It's not the final word. Because three days later, he comes roaring back to life. And he does it because he loves you. And that will never end. Pray. Pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. When we come to you stumbling, crawling, oftentimes broken inside. Father, you know the pains that we are enduring both the ones we have verbalized and those we have buried deep in our hearts. God, would you teach us to trust you? Would you remind us, God, that you are sovereign over all? God, would you show us that your love remains, our love endures and is for us always? God, I pray for those of us in here who are weary hearted. Would we be able to lean on you? And would you hold us fast? Would you hold us close to yourself? For those of us in the darkness, God, would your light shine brightly and you draw us near to yourself? We thank you, God.